0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back to our seventh episode. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, how are you feeling this month?
1: I'm
2: feeling like i got a case of cabin fever, and I'm not quite sure what to do about that. Any suggestions?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, we've got multiple episodes of the GT Power Hour podcast that you could listen to if you haven't caught up yet.
2: All right, I think I'm pretty up-to-date on those, but... uh... (laughs) Maybe we'll think about future shows.
0: Well, Glenn, as we talked last month, we correctly predicted that we'd probably be talking about coronavirus again this month. And here we are. It's April, and we are still deep in the throes of the pandemic response and sheltering at home. I know that you've been involved making sure that industry members and clients are still able to get to and from their facilities and make sure that they keep the lights on.
2: It's been an interesting couple of weeks, and, you know, it just sort of speaks to the fact that You never know what's coming at you in this business. And watching the response, not only of industry, but of government to this pandemic, you know, a lot of learning as we're going on, but a lot of really good work that is going on. Just a point of personal reflection, you know, I was chairman of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission on September 11th. 2001, and we were obviously caught surprise on that day on a lot of different fronts and had to work very closely with our utility partners, generation partners, PJM, and other folks to address what was going on at the time in relation to the events of September 11th. And there's less than to what's going on now to what happened then, but in many respects, this is a lot different and certainly harder, I think, in my mind. September 11th was a singular definitive event that we had to respond to. This is an evolving event. It's a creeping event, and we get to learn from others who have gone through it maybe faster than others, but it presents unique challenges to everyone, but in particular the utility sector. At least with September 11th, there was a little bit of ability to see how we could come out at the other end, if you will, suggestions that we could put in place to make things a little bit better, what have you. This was a little trickier for sure, but we're getting through it. We're doing all right, and glad our, our listeners are joining us for another podcast. I think we have a terrific guest and a terrific conversation coming our way.
0: Well, that is a great segue, Glenn. I know you brought another special guest with you today. Do you care to introduce
2: him? Sure, I'd be honored to, actually. Uh, joining us today is Phil Moeller, former commissioner on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, somebody who's very much known to energy industry folks throughout the country and throughout the world. Phil currently serves as executive vice president of business operations and regulatory affairs at the Edison Electric Institute, which is the association that represents all of our country's investor-owned utilities. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining
1: us. Uh, It's great to be on with you. I appreciate the invitation. And it should be noted that we are appropriately socially distanced away (laughs) by several hundred miles. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I got two questions for you
2: before we uh, start off here. First of all, I never realized this, but when you Google the name Phil Moeller, you realize you're not the most famous Phil Moeller in the world. I thought you were,
1: but there's several other Phil Moellers that are quite accomplished in this world. Were you aware of that? I know of one that was a famous playwright in the 20s. So there you go. Other than that, you have to inform me more. Yeah, apparently
2: there's an author on the PBS NewsHour. You identified the playwright. You came up about as the fifth hit. when wow. I you
1: so Wow. wow. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble on that one. It looks like I'll have to make my name more famous for hopefully <laughs> good reasons.
2: And I also note on your bio that you're the second longest
1: serving FERC commissioner of all Time. That's pretty amazing. It is because it kind of flew by in one sense. It was a time where there were different issues that were arising, and you've probably heard me say it before. The transformation of the industry while I was on the commission was stunning, especially in terms of what happened with gas. Um, voting on these highly controversial LNG import facilities to just a few years later voting on LNG export facilities and, of course, the implications of natural gas prices on the electric system. It was quite a time, and I was honored to serve, and I served with a lot of great people. I had terrific staff, and it was a great time, but it really did go by quite quickly.
2: You did some terrific work there, that's for sure, and I think if they were creating a a Regulators Hall of Fame, you'd be in the inaugural class for the work you did down there during that time. Well, Yeah, you know, the transformation of the natural gas landscape during that time and what it meant both the natural gas industry as well as the electric industry. A lot of the economic upside and benefits we've seen before this recent COVID crisis, I think, are directly attributable to the work you and your colleagues did at FERC
1: at that time. Well, you were a great partner to work with, and you were always a great person to get perspectives on. We had a great dialogue going, and I'm sure that continue to this day. Well, Rory,
2: now that we've established that both Phil and I are awesome, why don't we kick it over to you to get into the red meat of this podcast?
0: I was going to say, Phil, don't feel too bad when you Google my name and I thought I had a pretty unique name. There's a professional golfer and there's also a professional skateboarder. So I'm way further down the list than you are and I have a, I feel a, a much less common name. So I really haven't done anything yet. I'm working. i hope this podcast will help move me up the ranks of publicity a little bit. No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> well, well, I wanted to say, first of all, that our guest from last month's episode, Jason Stanek, mentioned his time on the commission and how influential you were. You brought this up for me already, so I'll just jump right into it. Was there a feeling of whiplash with all of the back and forth on natural gas?
1: Not really whiplash because it did take several years to play out. But what I thought was most instructive was that I was honored to serve on the National Petroleum Council study on North American Gas resources sources in oil and that gave me an opportunity to hear from the producers on what was happening with the shale revolution in real time and because FERC doesn't regulate the production of gas it was a great opportunity for me to hear what was happening in again in real time and in ways that the larger population even kind of the energy professionals weren't that aware of and so that was a great opportunity and I remember going to give speeches say in Seattle my home state of Washington telling people about what was happening in Pennsylvania with fracking and And they were amazed. Now it's common knowledge, but To have that opportunity to be on that study committee of the National Petroleum Council was a terrific opportunity and one that I would hope other commissioners can have those opportunities in the future because of the unique nature of those discussions.
0: I was a reporter in northern Pennsylvania at that time, and it was very interesting for me as well because I was hearing these rumblings about natural gas development in northern Pennsylvania, 60 or 100 miles away from us out in the country, and I would bring it to my editors and say, I think it's a really interesting story, and they just said, nah, It was very hard to get those stories printed. Flash forward a couple of years, and all I had to do was say Marcellus Shale, and I was on the front page. It changed very quickly in those days. Jumping back to what's currently going on, I know that there's a lot of work within the Institute and your members on the current COVID-19 pandemic and what everyone's doing to respond to that.
1: Can you give us sort
0: of a rundown of where you guys are at, what's going on, and what you're doing in response?
1: Absolutely. Our industry jumped on this because we really had to. It was first done through the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, ESCC. For those who aren't aware, this is a private public partnership that involves CEOs of our member companies, along with folks who represent public power, the co-ops, the generators, along with high-ranking officials from the federal government, DOE, DHS, sometimes other agencies involved. This has been an ongoing group effort that has typically met about three times a year in person, with a lot of focus on storm response, and cybersecurity threats. But this kicked into action immediately. The situation was such that we would have to do a lot of important planning to make sure that the system remains reliable. It started with calls that are still ongoing of the ESCC twice a week. Out of the ESCC, presently, there are five tiger teams of specialists from throughout industry with Government representation to focus on various aspects of making sure that the system continues to run effectively and reliably. One of those is on supply chain issues, not only the personal protective equipment that's necessary for people to do their job, but also potentially equipment that's necessary for the operation of the system, especially given that some of this comes from overseas. A second area is continuity of operations of control rooms. Those are obviously necessary to run the system. And those crews have to be in a state where they're healthy and safe and not contaminated. Another area is continuity of operation of generation facilities. A little bit different, but still necessary for the system to run. A fourth area is those areas that are quarantined. How to deal with that? Think of perhaps a city that's off limits and yet still our member company employees have to be able to access those areas to keep the operation of the system going in order to maintain health and safety. A fifth area is on mutual assistance, particularly with storm season coming. If you are down your employees, how are you going to rely on other folks to help you out in terms of system restoration? So those are five areas that are critical These Tiger teams have been working on not only anticipating those problems, but planning for them and coming up with a plan to deal with all those areas. The ESCC has put out a resource guide as to how to deal with this. There have been several iterations of it. It started out at six pages. It's probably up to 70 now, and those iterations will continue maybe not every week, but regularly. And it's something that is a good resource for people to go to the ESCC website and take to look at. I think it demonstrates that the industry has been planning to work to deal with this crisis in a way that's proactive, anticipating that it could get a lot worse. But if it does, we'll be ready for it.
2: And you know, I think one of the more interesting aspects that maybe folks don't realize is just the sequestration protocols and how serious those are. We've already seen the New York ISO sequester its operators, making everybody sleep on site, move the 12-hour shifts. TJM is talking about the same, and as we record this in early April will wouldn't be surprised if pretty soon we learn that PJM has moved to sequester its employees. We're already hearing some utility generators are doing the same. It just speaks to the length folks are willing to go to keep this system up and running. And uh, as the
1: virus spreads, this could be something we're hearing about on a more regular basis. Do you agree, Phil? You're right, Glenn. And the key then is to make sure that we have, frankly, access to the tests so that when you have a crew that is running a control center, obviously you have to test them ahead of time to make sure every one of them does not have the virus. And then the next crew that comes in, whether it's a couple weeks later, similarly has to be tested ahead of time so that you don't contaminate control room. And there have been challenges getting those tests, but we're working on making sure that our government partners at all levels realize how critical these employees are for maintaining a reliable and safe grid. And
2: is the question of tests a
1: state-by-state
2: challenge? Is it a federal
1: challenge?
2: Because we're hearing that more and more, just the challenge of getting to test. How does that play out in real time?
1: I think it's both. There is an element of the federal government involved, but a lot of times it plays out at both the state and also the local levels. And we've been trying to raise the profile to get people to understand just what we've been talking about here. You need healthy people in control rooms to make sure the system is operational. We're not going to be in front of the healthcare industry in terms of their testing or first responders, but we want to be right next in line so that, again, the system is maintained with arguably extremely critical. Other than testing, what are the other challenges you're facing or concerned about? We have the need for the personal protection equipment in case our employees have to deal with members of the public who could be infected and that is something that whether it's masks or other types of clothing is something our folks need because they're on the front lines. So a lot of what we do can be done, particularly at the management level from home, but our frontline utility workers are going to have to interact with the public and protecting them is paramount. Absolutely. You need to keep them healthy and working for sure. As
0: compl- complicated as just the high-level discussion we're having right now sounds, I'm sure that the actual implementation details are even more complicated. The idea of the whole entire workforce, and I'm assuming the dispatchers, maybe you've got like a dozen or so that you're talking about in every control center, upending their entire lives and saying, okay, now you basically got to separate from your family and stay in this facility. That has to be a significant lift that you have
1: to provide a lot of support on. That's correct. You've analyzed it quite appropriately. One of the things we did immediately when we realized this crisis was coming, each of our member companies designated a single point of contact, we call that the SPOC committee, so that they can coordinate best practices, what they're dealing with. They talk at least a couple of times a week, and we have some number of companies who are kind of on the leading edge of this, Puget Sound Energy in Seattle area. As we speak, Con Ed is facing a lot of challenges in New York, a PSEG in New Jersey, as the virus spreads and impacts the workforce, tragically. We've had some employees who've passed from the virus. Uh, a lot are quarantined, and in that sense, that's the front line. And learning from those folks who have gone through it hopefully helps the areas that are affected later. We also have an international program at EEI, and we've learned a lot from our Asian members and those from Europe as well as to how they dealt with it, what to anticipate, and then how to get back to normal, so to speak, as soon as possible.
0: You know, every day I reflect just a little bit on how I in no way saw the magnitude of this coming, just the world impact that it's had. How long was it before you really got a grasp on where this was going, how long it might be? How long do you think this is going to last, and how long did it take you to come to that realization?
1: Well, as fate had it, we had a board meeting. We had a quarterly board meetings, we had one very early in March here in D.C., right before things really hit hard. and one of our speech Came in uh, from Georgetown University, Dr. Rebecca Katz. Turns out that one of our CEOs is on the Board of Regents for Georgetown, and she'd heard Dr. Katz speak, and on short notice, we were able to hear from her, and she's one of the world's leading experts on this, and she gave a very sobering account on how things were looking. They were changing every 24 hours. It was getting worse. And that was particularly helpful at a very critical time because that, coming from an expert like her, who we still hear from on a weekly basis, it was a very sobering time. And I think it emphasized to our entire industry, but certainly at the CEO level to begin with, that this was very serious. We should plan for it to get very bad, and we have a little bit of time, but get planning for it now. And that's really what kicked off the effort of getting the SPOC committee together, getting the twice a week ESCC calls going. So that turned out to be a very timely talk from a world expert at right about the right time we need to hear it. What
0: is the estimate for how bad it gets that you guys are working with right now?
1: We're planning a worst case scenario, again worst case not a prediction, of this going on for nine months with the assumption that half of the workforce is unable to work. With that, our folks have focused on what's really essential what doesn't have to be done, what can we put off, but what's really essential and who has to do it. And that's a difficult effort, but it's one that's ongoing and one that I've always felt you plan for the worst and it won't happen, but at least if you plan for it, you're ready for it. That is a lot of what the SPOC group is working on. One of the things that's going on that's probably not well-publicized is our member companies really working to bolster and support the communities they serve, and some of this goes under the radar, but not only monetary donations, but a real focus on critical infrastructure, whether it's the facilities like hospitals that need obviously reliable service, but also the of facilities that might be involved in disinfecting areas, a range of newly critical, especially given the times, areas and facilities and people that think we're quite proud of the fact that our, our companies have, have delivered and are working to make sure that they're serving their customers in this critical time in the best way possible. We've also agreed to not have any mandatory shutoffs during this period. That was an announcement we made a few weeks ago, well-received by the regulatory community and other others, and showing a commitment that without electricity, life gets very difficult. So we've worked on making sure that as best as possible, again, the system is maintained and people don't have to worry about being shut off if they're in a situation where they're economically challenged.
2: Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And you also made reference there to the regulators and their role in this as well. And obviously, a lot's being asked of the utility companies right now. A lot needs be done by the utility companies right now. But state regulators and federal regulators also play a pretty significant role during times like this, uh, coordinating those communications with the utilities, making sure that they have that information that they need, being advocates within the government structure for the utilities. As you pointed out, Phil, obviously healthcare workers and first responders have their needs, but utilities and utility workers and generation companies need to be part of that next level conversation. And a lot of times it's it's incumbent on the state utility regulators to be those champions inside government to make sure that those services are continuing. and so a lot of great role work being done by the regulators out here as well. Yeah,
1: I agree. We've had a couple of calls with the neighbor community. First of all, to inform them a lot about what we talked about earlier. What is the government industry response to this? That was really headed up by Scott Aronson, who heads that team within EEI, and we had a good 300 folks on that call. Then we followed up with a group of. Wall Street analyst to discuss the financial impacts going forward for state regulators. And we had over 600 people on that call wow. that went for almost two hours just to talk through the implications of what this means, what regulators should be anticipating, how they can approach this set of issues so that the member companies remain healthy in what is obviously an extraordinary time. It's a
2: great segue because I wanted to get into that. Obviously, the priority is just system reliability right now, but there's obviously going to be An economic impact on utilities as well as all businesses throughout this whole crisis, and you read stories about power demand being well down, gas prices are low, oil prices are low. There's going to be some real economic impacts as the utility collections don't come in because demand has really been shattered. Any thoughts on how that economic
1: picture evolves for
2: utilities as we move forward here?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We have a team on the finance group that is analyzing that. There's a bit of a So as we speak, we're not quite sure what all the implications are, and obviously they're going to play out differently depending on how hard an area is hit. But generally speaking, our industrial and commercial load is way down, residential is up. We've seen numbers in some areas that overall demand is down in the area of 12%, but that's not a national figure. That's, again, localized so we have to clear that out. We also have a group looking at it from the context of, because the demand shape is different, will it produce certain stresses on the distribution grid that haven't been there in the past? Again, a bit early, but our folks are looking at it to make sure that again, the system remains reliable. An interesting point. The load shapes are changing. <laughs> exactly. And load centers are changing.
2: That's a pretty fascinating point that I really hadn't thought of. I mean, I'm always in
1: a geeky way, interested in demand shape anyway. And obviously, rates have a big part of that in terms of how you try to create incentives to either peak shave or shift load. But obviously, a lot of people are working from home. And I think people are recognizing even more the value of electricity, which I think is a great value. But obviously, it's essential for life, health, and safety. And we'll undoubtedly have lots of lessons that we can learn out of this once we can look back. But in the meantime, it's too early to do that now because we're the middle
0: of it. Yeah, I'll note that I have seen several of the grid operators have announced the changes that they've seen. They've all obviously noted some reduction in load, but also, I thought it was funny, I think it was MISO and PJM that have noted that the peaks, their morning peaks, have shifted a little bit later now because everyone is Keep sleeping clean. in a little bit more than they <laughs>
2: used to, so
0: there's at least some benefit to it.
2: Yeah, yeah that's that. right.
0: Obviously, Phil, COVID-19, the pandemic is top of mind, but there it is certainly not the only issue going on in the energy space. What else are you at the Institute working on? There's a lot of just very large moving targets and fundamental issues going on.
1: Absolutely. That's what's been kind of challenging about this is that dealing with COVID-19 has kind of been a second full-time job for everybody, but the rest of the work continues. And there's, as you know, a lot going on. We're going through a really exciting transition to a cleaner and greener grid that is profound. And we don't want people to lose sight of the fact that it's happening and it's a good thing. And it's happening really pretty quickly. We still have our goals of reducing our carbon emissions emissions. Compared to 2005 levels, they're 50% lower by 2030 and 80% by 2050. But there's a need to focus on then the technology and the policies that can take us even farther. But a lot of those technologies haven't been developed yet, and so that's a major effort in terms of legislative approach and an approach on policy. We have ongoing issues, obviously, at the FERC related to various policies reform of FERPA, the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act of nineteen seventy eight, is important, really important to several of our members throughout the country. We have what's going on obviously in the markets, and I know you've talked about that before, whether it's energy price formation or the future of capacity markets and how that's dealt with in some markets. We have the issue of transmission and the incentives with Kirk having put out the NOPR. Glenn will recall that I was kind of always a very strong Pro transmission, given the challenges in siting and cost allocation related to it. So, we welcome what the Commission has done on incentives policy and hope that what's been proposed can continue to move forward. Then, at the state level, we have ongoing issues of the need to invest in the distribution grid as we deal with more distributed resources, getting the right price signals that goes to rate reform. I would argue that the fixed cost component of the bill better reflect essentially the 50% that it should reflect in terms of system costs versus commodity supply. So that's a whole set of ongoing issues, and I could ramble on for a long time on a variety of other things that we're dealing with. But essentially, again, focusing on the transition to a cleaner energy grid, focusing on getting customers new products and solutions and making sure that we have the right investment climate to continue to invest in the infrastructure, both the transmission level and the distribution level.
2: Rory, I think we may need to change the title of our podcast to the GT Power Week because (laughs) Phil just threw out enough topics that we could talk for probably that long. That was a terrific list. Not sure exactly where to start. Why don't we combine two of the things you threw out there, the cleaning and the greening of the grid and the future of capacity markets. I am kind of intrigued by your big picture thoughts on how do we merge the goal to green the grid, if you will, with those regions of the country that have capacity constructs. Any thoughts you can offer on that?
1: Well, again, I think transition is going to be a big key to that because, as we all know, certain renewable resources are what we call location constrained and are often available in areas where there isn't a lot of load. And so figuring out how to get a more robust transmission system is going to be key. It'll be interesting to see how some of the newer, let's say newer technologies or application of those technologies, particularly offshore wind, blend into our national goals and especially state goals. It's yet to be seen, but it's obviously happening and very important to a lot of makers, We're in an era where we're considering a lot of new approaches. Where is storage going to go? Obviously, there's great potential there. How it plays out is going to differ by market, but there's great opportunity and a lot of interest, again, by policymakers to push storage nationally and also state by state. So it's an exciting time to be following these things. And as to predicting where capacity markets go. I'll defer to you on that, Glenn, but (laughs) it's certainly going to keep us busy for a while. Yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. Well, let's focus on transmission a little. You voted on order of
1: 1,000. I voted for it, but I also had a partial dissent on it. My feeling at the time was that specifically on the reliability projects, that having worked for an energy company, I knew how sacred reliability projects were. And I just didn't think it was worth the fight to open that up to a more competitive position. The other thought I had, and you can judge whether this was correct or not, that the focus of Order 1000 should have been more on inter-regional projects as opposed to the projects within regions. Both were important, but the overall focus of the order was more within region as opposed to between regions. And to me, that's, where more of the potential was to get interregional projects going because it's tough, and there's been some progress on it, but my preference would have been to flip those two in terms of the level of importance. Looking back 10 years later, good
2: order, bad order, incomplete order, how would you evaluate the work you did? When was that,
1: 2010,
2: 2011? Um, Yes. I think all of the above.
1: Some people think it's good. Some people wish it would go away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Some people are kind of living with it. It's played out regionally, and I understand the commission is just really too swamped with a variety of things, especially now, to revisit Order 1000. But I think there's some potential to look at best practices in certain regions and maybe have those migrate to others so that ultimately we get the transmission built. That's the goal. And it's Difficult. There's been a lot of time and effort put into it, but it hasn't really resulted in a robust build-out that I think was envisioned by its strong supporters. And just to clarify
0: for our listeners, Order 1000 was a landmark order that ushered in the era of competitive transmission planning. Had it not really, and and forgive my lack of long-term experience here, but had there been much competitive planning prior to that, or this was really the birthplace of competitive planning? Planning in the regional grids.
1: Well, it certainly added an element of more robust planning and a more open process. What I think a lot of people miss is that when transmission is built, there are elements of competition already baked into it, whether it's between vendors to design it, engineer it, build it. There are competitive pressures that are inherent in any project. And so the question then was, could outside entities become more involved in bidding for projects? And the record is kind of mixed on that. There have been some in some areas, and there haven't been a lot in others. But, again, I would push back on the notion that there's a lack of competition generally, because, as I noted, there are elements within any project that have plenty of competitive forces placed on them.
0: We're just in the middle now of PJM- building their first project that was approved through the Order 1000 process. Do you feel that it has taken too long to get here, or is this about how long it was probably going to need to take?
1: I think it's taken too long, but we are where we are, and hopefully, again, we can learn some lessons from regions to actually move these projects forward. I think there are a number of reasons that Order 1000 implementation has taken so long. There were, I think, a number of areas that perhaps could have been anticipated, but were challenging. I think it's fair to say that the RTOs were never designed to really pick winners on transmission projects, and I think they struggled with that new role. For instance, what happens if you have a competitive process and you pick one, but you have a raft of people who didn't win that project? What is the appeal process like? Those were the kind of things that I don't think were anticipated or at least thought through with Order 1000 and probably added to the delay of the actual order coming to fruition. And they've been dealt with, but again, it took time to wrestle through some of those tough issues.
0: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and that's definitely what we've been seeing in PJM, all of the legal wrangling, but it has obviously been for a purpose to get all of this ironed out. And the artificial island project is currently under construction. LS Power is doing that. They've announced that the entity overseeing the first Section is joining as a new transmission owner in PJM and signing the transmission owner agreement. So it's moving forward.
2: You know, and I think one of the things that Phil said that was pretty profound, it's kind of buried in there, but it's kind of consistent with what we see at FERC a lot of times is when you see these landmark orders, whether it's 888, 1000, probably in 10 years, we'll be looking back on the MOPR order the same way. It doesn't always come out as a perfect order the first time. And a lot of times, FERC has to make these bold policy statements, and then it takes a couple different proceedings in a couple different years to clean up the loose ends, and for a variety of reasons, maybe that hasn't happened as it relates to Order 1000, but I certainly look at sort of like the history of FERC policy making. and the RPM order came out in, what was that, 2005 maybe? They have cleaned it up almost every year for like the next 10 years, and that's just the way it goes as people learn how to implement these policies and realize holes and challenges that may be presented. The key in my mind is having those key landmark orders out there to set the guideposts, if you will. And then it just takes a little bit of time to fill in the blanks sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's well said.
0: Well, Phil, based on the reaction that we get from our online audience or the Twitter responses that we get, I would be remiss if I didn't bring you back, kind of in passing, but I thought it was significant, You mentioned PERPA and that you have several members who are very focused on that. What is their interest, and where do you anticipate it going?
1: Well, we're very pleased with the proposed rule from the Commission on a number of areas. I think it's widely appreciated that the one-mile rule meets reform, that the megawatt threshold is one that arguably was somewhat arbitrary to begin with. There is issue about when these contracts are signed or enforceable. And importantly, dealing with the avoided cost issue, which is set by each state, but is one where there have been some conflicting court decisions as to what states can do, how far they can go. Bottom line is that the renewables industry is a declining cost industry. And the larger the project is, the cheaper the power is. And so if it's really about renewables, The larger scale, whether it's utility scale, universal scale, are going to come in cheaper in terms of the cost to ultimately the customers. And we feel that oftentimes with the mandatory purchase obligation, which is in law and can't be changed except by Congress, there should be some discretion for states that particularly if they're already long on power, there should be some relevance there that if they don't need the power, they shouldn't have to pay for it. And we have cases where we have a member company that are going to be long for years and still have to buy this power. And ultimately, the costs are borne by the customers. And we have state commissions that I think are eager for proper reform at the federal level because they're spending an enormous amount of their resources dealing with these applications that, again, in many cases, are projects that aren't needed. So we hope that the commission can continue its progress and get out a final rule, hopefully sooner rather than later, Uh, again, because it's costing customers Billions of dollars in the long run for a power that is either overpriced or not needed.
0: How do you think that gets resolved? Is there a
1: solution to that? Well, the development will continue, but it will be more efficient if it's a larger project. We've had cases, say, in Colorado, where they went through a competitive bidding process and some of these PERPA developers didn't win, but then they turned around and used PERPA to get their projects built, even though they couldn't compete in a larger competitive framework. And then we had some court decisions come out of that that kind of slapped the Colorado Commission down in a way that, again, created uncertainty. And that's where this final rule will help create that certainty. The power will be developed, but it should be done as cheaply as possible and not have a larger project split into a bunch of smaller ones just to walk through the loophole that's allowed in the purpose. Very happy with the Commission's action on this, and we hope that they can complete it
2: soon. So why don't we transition to maybe FERC a little bit. We've talked, obviously, about a bunch of FERC policies and initiatives and obviously, the purpose stuff is, is very important work that they're doing right now. But as a former commissioner, Phil, I'm, I'm kind of curious your take on just the current state of affairs at CERC. Yeah, I think one of the hallmarks of your tenure as a commissioner was your ability to work well with your colleagues and get a lot of terrific policy work done. And obviously, like over the last... I don't know, five years or so, there's been a lot of turnover at FERC. We've seen a lot of commissioners come in and out the door. Uh, Obviously, we had the tragic passing of Chairman McIntyre. And it seems like a lot of the stability that we had at FERC, I mean, obviously, you served with Commissioner LaFleur, who I believe served for about nine years. You served for about nine years. The stability that was in the agency during your tenure seems to be in a different right now. I've always been amazed my 20-some odd years following regulatory issues. Commissioners matter, and the complexion of the commission matters, and I've always been amazed the difference one commissioner can make, even if it's one commissioner on a five-member commission. I'm just curious your take as you look at a building that I'm sure you have a tremendous amount of fondness for. You spent a lot of great years there. You did a lot of great work there. How do you look at FERC these days and the dynamics over there, and how do you just assess their ability to move Forward and deal with some of these challenges we're going to see coming down the pike here?
1: Well, they have had a challenging number of years, and you went through why it was that way. Obviously, losing the quorum was a real challenge for them, and that was precipitated by the fact that there were some vacancies that weren't filled. So I think the overall premise is to the extent that the commission can be Full, the, the commission's full, with five members that ideally can serve long terms, that creates the kind of stability that I believe is helpful for ultimately the customers of the electric system, but certainly the regulated entities that the commission oversees. And so I feel for the current commissioners because they're still, in one sense, overcoming the lack of the quorum and those vacancies over the years. In that sense, they are getting a lot of work done, and it is more challenging without five members. So that. Was- be my goal, that the commission eventually can be full again with people who can serve long terms, because it provides the kind of institutional stability that the regulated entities and the financial community desire that, again, ultimately benefits customers throughout the United States.
2: One year from now, do you think we're going to have a five-member FERC? I hope so.
1: I, <laughs> <Someone asked. laughs> I You know, I don't think... <laughs> if we if we talked about it in January before the COVID-19 hit, it would probably be a different discussion, right? Yeah, I think so. Maybe a little bit different. The commission, as most of us are working remotely, have been in contact with folks there appropriately, and I believe that they're striving hard to keep the work going. And we appreciate what FERC and NERC have done in terms of the flexibility related to COVID-19 so that we can focus on a reliable system, so they're to be commended for their flexibility on that of issues that are important. I agree. I just
2: and I'm maybe not as optimistic that we're going to see a five-person commission soon. It just seems like the nomination process has gotten stuck. There's been an opening. Uh, how long has Commissioner LaFleur been gone? Has she been gone a year yet? I don't uh, think quite a no, year. Not quite a year Yeah, She left yeah. in the summer, right? Yeah. So, you know, we still have yet to see a nomination for her spot for whatever reason. I'm sure there's good political explanation somewhere that we haven't seen the spots get filled. And even if they do get nominated, have to go through the process there, so we'll see. I'll be optimistic too, that a year from now, or hopefully sooner, we'll have that five-person commission because I absolutely agree, it's you know really essential to have five commissioners there to have that agency operating at full force and as you mentioned, there's a lot of big issues on their plate and they're still in, in some respects working through a tremendous backlog that was built up because of the lack of a quorum so I'll just stay optimistic on that part
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think that the challenge for the commission always from my view anyway, is that that The press of daily business is a bit of a grind. It's fascinating. Every single day was intellectually interesting to me when I served. It's a little more difficult for the commission to kind of stop and look ahead and say, okay, what are the issues coming down the pike that can create problems? And the one that I probably was most known for was the gas-electric coordination issue and the need to better align those two industries given their increasing conversion emergence and importance to each other. And those are the kind of things that if you have a full commission and you're not scrambling as much to do the press of business, you get a little more of an opportunity to anticipate things that can be solved in a more methodical way than before they become a crisis.
2: Yeah, that's a really excellent point. I mean, there's so much you have to do just with your traditional blocking and tackling associated with regulating that taking time to look forward and do some terrific work like you did on gas-electric coordination it just gets harder and harder to do that stuff when there's fewer and fewer folks to do the day-to-day regulating. So that's a really good point.
1: Well, I'm sure you saw it when you were chair of the Pennsylvania Commission as well, just, just so much going on. Obviously, you had more industries to regulate as well, but I agree. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Well Roy, I think
2: we've reached that part of the program where we asked our guests for some free advice. Please do. <laughs> All right, I'll kick it off. Commissioner moeller this is your opportunity. To offer some advice to whoever
1: you like right now. I was kinda of hoping for an hour on that subject, but nevertheless <laughs> <laughs> I understand that last month he had servant Annik, and of course I'm very fond of him. He and I worked together at the commission for about seven years and his advice was for people to stay inside. I would say, given the time we're in, I would offer somewhat similar advice to everyone listening in the sense that it's really important to take care of your mental health during this time where we don't know how long this is going to go. And getting a routine, making sure you take care of yourself to the extent possible socially appropriate, get the exercise you need, and be very cognizant of, frankly, being good to yourself because this is a very difficult time with a lot of uncertainty going forward. We don't know how long it's going to last. Tragically, it could affect people we know and love and that's hanging out there as well. So just take care of yourself, everybody. That's my general advice. Maybe in a year I'll have something more profound <laughs> to say, but I think it's... Well, it, sounds pretty like, profound.
0: It, it sounds like you two minutes were with Glenn from the beginning of the episode when he was telling me he had cabin fever. I didn't have very good advice, Uh, but that's a lot better.
1: Yeah.
2: So, so how are you taking care of yourself these days, Phil? How are you staying, staying through this whole thing?
1: Well, I think I'm eating a little bit better. I'm focusing on eating a lot more salmon. I Get into the fact that I did <laughs> six summers in an Alaska salmon cannery when I was in college and afterwards. So, trying to eat better, get a little more exercise, and try and get into a little bit more of a routine so that I can take breaks. We're working extraordinarily hard. The teams at the Again, as I said earlier. Are, are, this is kind of a second full-time job dealing with COVID-19, but a lot of other work is going on. So it's kind of been a crazy, hectic month. And I think we're starting to get into a little bit more of a rhythm, but we're not quite there yet, given the press of this issue and the need to plan ahead of time for those worst-case scenarios. So I just, again, I want people to take care of themselves and just be more cognizant of that, which I'm trying to be.
0: We obviously whiffed on topics to discuss. Six years in an Alaskan salmon camp Canneries.
2: we could have done a whole hour on that oh i've I have had a whole hour on that Rory they're fascinating stories believe me well oh. um, <laughs> I spent many days talking about salmon canning practices okay so,
1: wow uh, <laughs> yeah no
2: they're terrific stuff yep. Yeah.
1: I mean I can go into two piece cans and three piece cans and
2: all kinds
1: of things that you probably don't want to hear about.
2: <laughs> I'm surprised you even want to eat salmon after spending all those years doing that. That's impressive that you can still eat it.
1: Well I don't eat the canned stuff, but I do eat the fresh. <laughs> you eat the fresh stuff. That'll tell you something. That is a tip. I'm gonna put
0: that in the episode notes. Tips on salmon consumption.
1: Yeah, I just don't want the Alaska Fisherman Union to say that, but that's okay. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Well, we're coming to the end here and As we always do, we call it the GT Power Hour, but we do our absolute darndest to make sure that we get you out of here in less than an hour, and I think we've again succeeded today. It looks like we're at about... 45 minutes for this episode so you're getting a whole 15 minutes back use it as you will do some research on alaskan salmon canning and have a great day phil thank you for joining us today any last words before we go oh
1: this has been fun thanks for having me on thanks for the focus on the issues and maybe some year you'll have me back again there you go
0: (laughs) I really appreciate it. Thanks again. Glenn, any last words on your
2: part? To be safe, take care of you, take care of others, and stock off on canned salmon.
0: Agreed completely. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you next month. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts, and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com that's g-t p-o-w-e-r-g-r-o-u-p dot com or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com that's p-o-w-e-r-h-o-u-r at gtpowergroup.com thanks again we'll see you next time